Hello, welcome to Heart Failure Beat, a podcast produced by the Heart Failure Society of America. Heart Failure Beat is designed specifically for clinicians who treat heart failure patients in the United States of America and around the world. We are your hosts. I'm Dr. Priya Mapathy, an assistant professor of medicine and advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Johns Hopkins School of Medicine in Baltimore, Maryland. And my name is Dr. Michael Beasley, assistant professor of medicine and an advanced heart failure and transplant cardiologist at the Yale School of Medicine in New Haven, Connecticut. Thank you so much for joining us today. Now let's get to our episode. Welcome to our episode. Today on Heart Failure Rounds, I look at three papers on heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And on From Failure to Function, I dive into the late-breaking trials from the American College of Cardiology scientific sessions. And in our full interview, we talked to Dr. Paul Heidenreich about economic considerations in the management of heart failure. Well, what do you say, Priya? Should we get this thing rolling? Let's go, Michael. Hi, welcome to Heart Failure Rounds. This is Dr. Michael Beasley, and this month I'm very happy to bring you three articles on heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. The first article was published in JAMA, the Journal of the American Medical Association, just this month in March. The title of the article is Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction, a review. The authors of this review were Margaret Redfield and Barry Borlaug, both coming from the Department of Cardiovascular Disease at the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. Currently, approximately 3 million people in the United States of America have heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, and this is becoming more and more prevalent amongst our heart failure patients for a number of reasons. One is that we've become more uh, adept at recognizing the presence of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction amongst our population, but also our population is getting older and more obese, and these are risk factors for the development of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Other risk factors also would include uh, comorbid hypertension, diabetes mellitus, and coronary artery disease. In the paper, uh, they have some very wonderful uh, figures. Uh, one of the figures that they, uh, in their figure one, is a, a great depiction of the pathophysiology or potential pathophysiological mechanisms of the development of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. One uh, such pathway includes hypertensive heart disease. So in patients that have arterial or hypertension, that can lead to the development of left ventricular hypertrophy and fibrosis that then results in left ventricular left atrial diastolic dysfunction, and eventually the development of post-capillary pulmonary hypertension once the uh, syndrome of HFPEF has developed. There's also a pro-inflammatory pathway uh, where there's different pro-inflammatory comorbidities, you know, for example, such as obesity and diabetes, that leads to microvascular endothelial cell inflammation. This then results in a number of things such as myofibril stiffness and hypertrophy, myocardial fibrosis, and decreased myocardial flow reserve that then causes cardiac dysfunction at rest and exercise. And then they talk about there could be some potential other phenol groups as well that are less commonly recognized or understood at this point in time. Typically, clinical presentation of patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction includes shortness of breath. Now, this can be accompanied by signs and symptoms of congestion, such as uh, you know, lower extremity edema, orthopnea, paroxysmal nocturnal dyspnea, bendopnea, things like this. But also, you could have patients that have unexplained dyspnea on exertion. And these are patients that then when you take them to the uh, cardiac cath lab, they might have normal filling pressures at rest, but then when they exercise, they have a steep elevation and left-sided filling pressures with pulmonary capillary wedge pressure uh, rising with activity that then leads to post-capillary pulmonary hypertension. 
Common comorbidities that are found in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction include uh, lung disease, both obstructive and restrictive, anemia, frailty, and atrial fibrillation, which we'll talk a bit a little bit later in one of the other articles. Again, another great figure that they have in their paper uh, involves the process of diagnosing heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Most commonly, this is always going to start with an echocardiogram, and as we know, Heart failure with preserved ejection fraction includes patients that have a left ventricular ejection fraction of 50% or more. Uh, as they talked about, the uh, right heart catheterization is a great tool for helping aid in the diagnostic process, particularly if you're trying to understand uh, what those left-sided filling pressures are in the setting of a person that has what appears to be a normal ejection fraction on echocardiography. BNP or NT ProBNP also is another uh, tool that can be used to make the diagnosis. Now, that being said, there are certain people with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction that are going to have a normal BNP or NT ProBNP. Uh, and, and those folks are more commonly going to be patients that are obese, potentially younger, and have normal renal function. Uh, they may be more likely to have not such a significant elevation in uh, natriuretic peptide levels despite having that syndrome. And then lastly, uh, there's the, the H2 FPEF or HFPEF risk score uh, that can be used to try to ascertain if your patient has heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. This risk score uh, includes the following. So the first H is for heavy. Uh, and if your patient has a BMI of greater than 30%, that's two points. There's another H there for hypertension. If they're on two or more antihypertensive medications, they get a single point. If they have any history of atrial fibrillation, they get three points. If they have pulmonary hypertension, which means a right ventricular systolic pressure on echocardiography that's greater than 35 millimeters of mercury, they get a point. If they're older than age 60, they get a point. And if they, again, another echocardiographic parameter, if their E over E prime is greater than nine, they get a point, and that's representative of increased left-sided filling pressures, and that's at rest. So patients that have a total score of six to nine uh, very likely have HFPEF if you add those up. And those that have a score of zero to one uh, most likely do not have HFPEF. And then if you have somebody in the middle that has a score of that uh, two to five, you have to do some additional diagnostic testing to try to rule them in or out in regards to their diagnosis. Uh, prognostically, uh, when patients are admitted for acute on chronic decompensated heart failure with preserved ejection fraction, 2 to 5% experience in hospital mortality. Um, in the five years after a heart failure hospitalization for HFPEF patients, 80% of them have been rehospitalized at least once. And 50 to 75% of them have uh, passed away within five years. So pretty significant uh, red flag or signal for for risk moving forward is a heart failure hospitalization for HFPEF patients. Annual mortality overall is about 15%, and heart failure with preserved ejection fraction patients typically are hospitalized about 1.4 times uh, per year. And lastly, uh, the treatment for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction includes some medical therapies. Uh, the class one recommendation is the use of loop diuretics to decongest a patient if necessary. But there is randomized controlled trials also out there with SGLT2 inhibitors, uh, dipagliflozin and empagliflozin, uh, where, which has resulted in a class 2A indication for the use of these drugs with heart, in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. These trials that were completed uh, resulted in 
a reduction in the rate of heart failure hospitalization and cardiovascular death, although the signal for heart failure hospitalization was uh, the one that really led them to that uh, achieve that primary outcome. Also, it's really encouraged to educate patients on heart failure self-care, meaning that they need to be adherent to the medications that are prescribed and live a healthy lifestyle. For patients that are obese or uh, weight loss is uh, strongly uh, recommended, uh, losing anywhere from 5 to 10% of one's body weight through caloric restriction can lead to improved outcomes. And uh, exercise is also very important. Uh, aerobic exercise in particular can lead to improvements in uh, quality of life. Other treatment recommendations include managing atrial fibrillation for those patients that have comorbid atrial fibrillation. It also includes the use of angiotensin receptor blockers, such as candesartan in patients that have a left ventricular ejection fraction of 50 to 55%. Mineralocorticoid receptor antagonists like spironolactone can be used in the proper patient population, depending on renal function and serum potassium levels. Angiotensin receptor neprilysin inhibitors could be considered specifically more so for women uh, if the left ventricular ejection fraction is less than 60%. And lastly, the use of pulmonary artery pressure-guided therapy, such as CardioMEMS devices, could be included or utilized to prevent uh, recurrent heart failure hospitalizations. The second article is Atrial Fibrillation Ablation for Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction, a Randomized Controlled Trial. This is an article in press uh, that will be published in Jack Heart Failure. The first author was David Chang, and the senior author is Ling Hang Ling. They both come from the Department of Cardiology at Alfred Hospital in Melbourne, Australia, and the University of Melbourne. Many patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction also have atrial fibrillation. As we mentioned earlier, 50% of the current heart failure population include patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Overall, uh, in, in general, atrial fibrillation is the most common sustained arrhythmia that's out there. And there's a 50% prevalence of atrial fibrillation in patients with heart failure, both HEFREF and HEFPEF. There's a 21% prevalence of HEFPEF in patients that have atrial fibrillation. Now, as we mentioned before there in the prior article, there's not a whole lot of randomized data out there for treatment for patients with HEFPEF, and it was really just the SGLT2 inhibitor trials that provided us some uh, recent information about things that can be done to help patients. What is known is that catheter ablation has shown benefit in heart failure with preserved ejection fraction in non-randomized studies where there has been increased quality of life and increased survival identified. Observational studies have also shown that normal sinus rhythm restoration with catheter ablation has resulted in the improvement in hemodynamics in patients with HEFPEF. Therefore, this study looked to enroll patients that had both heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and atrial fibrillation, and HEFPEF was confirmed by hemodynamic parameters that included either a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 15 millimeter Hg at rest or 25 uh, with peak exercise. The study was conducted at two tertiary hospitals in Melbourne, Australia. Out of 243 patients that were uh, referred for atrial fib ablation in their center, 72 were eligible for the study. And of these 72, they were able to recruit 43 and eventually included 31 of these patients. They were randomized into two groups, uh, 16 uh, that eventually underwent catheter ablation and 15 that underwent optimal medical therapy. 
and they followed them for six months after uh, the time of randomization. The patients needed to be 18 years of age or greater with symptomatic paroxysmal or persistent atrial fibrillation. This had to be their first catheter ablation procedure, and they needed to have signs or symptoms of heart failure and obviously a preserved ejection fraction as noted by echocardiography. The patients had a four-week trial run-in period where they were given antiarrhythmic drugs in order to try to optimally rate control them, as well as antihypertensive medications in order to try to better control their, their blood pressure. Diuretics were also given if the patients were believed to be congested at the time of trial enrollment. Following the run-in period, the patients all underwent an exercise right heart catheterization to confirm the presence of heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Again, as I mentioned, the hemodynamic parameters that would include enrollment were a pulmonary capillary wedge pressure of 15 millimeters of mercury at rest or of 25 with peak exercise. Uh, peak exercise was performed using a supine bicycle. The patients also underwent cardiopulmonary exercise testing with a bicycle ergometer. Upon the completion of this pre-procedural testing, antiarrhythmic drugs were discontinued prior to catheter ablation, and then after catheter ablation, they were put on oral anticoagulation. The primary study endpoint was the difference in peak pulmonary capillary wedge pressure on exercise right heart catheterization from baseline to six months, but they also did look at changes in peak VO2 max, with the cardiopulmonary exercise testing, as well as some other quality of life measurements. In the treatment arm that received catheter ablation, the peak pulmonary capillary wedge pressure was reduced from 30.4 millimeters of mercury to 25.4 millimeters of mercury in the six-month follow-up. Peak VO2 increased from 20.2 to 23.1. The NT pro-BMP was reduced from 794 to 141. And the Minnesota Living with Heart Failure score was reduced from 51 to 16.6. Based upon the hemodynamic parameters, 50% of patients that underwent catheter ablation no longer met exercise right heart cath-based criteria for half-path at the six-month mark. And there were no significant changes in the group that received medical therapy only in regard to their pre-randomization and six-month follow-up hemodynamics. And finally... Uh, the third and final article that we'll talk about today was published in JAMA Cardiology in the month of March. The article was titled, Effect of Personalized Accelerated Pacing on Quality of Life, Physical Activity and Atrial Fibrillation in Patients with Preclinical and Overt Heart Failure with Preserved Ejection Fraction, the MyPACE Randomized Clinical Trial. First author was Margaret Infeld from the Division of Cardiology at the University of Vermont in Burlington, Vermont. And the senior author is Marcus Meyer from the Lillehigh Heart Institute at the University of Minnesota in Minneapolis, Minnesota. In recent years, we've known that beta blockers and rate control in general can lead to increased morbidity in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Uh, they feel worse on such uh, types of treatment and uh, just don't do quite as well. Uh, as we've mentioned, there ha there is a lack of targeted treatments for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction outside of the randomized control trials that have shown uh, some benefit with SGLT2 inhibitors. And there's been some preclinical and exploratory clinical studies 
that have suggested pacing at moderately accelerated rates may benefit patients with HFPEF. Therefore, the, the question that the authors of this study were trying to, was trying to answer was, you know, of patients that have either preclinical or syndromic heart failure with preserved ejection fraction and have a pre-existing pacemaker in place that limits ventricular dyssynchrony. So this would either be that meaning that they could be atrially paced, they have cardiac conduction system pacing, or that they have a biventricular pacer. You know, if they have a personalized backup heart rate uh, that allows moderate acceleration or moderate, uh, moderately accelerated rates instead of the normal setting of 60 beats per minute, might those patients do better over the long term? The trial was conducted at the University of Vermont Medical Center. They assessed more than 1,500 patients for uh, eligibility for trial enrollment and ended up randomizing 107 patients. 50 patients were randomized to personalized accelerated pacing, while the other 57 were randomized to usual care. There were some dropouts after the time of randomization, and in the end, 48 patients were analyzed that had been randomized to the personalized accelerated pacing arm, whereas 52 were analyzed that had been randomized to the usual care arm. The primary outcome of the study was to assess the change in the Minnesota Living with Heart Failure Questionnaire score from their baseline. Um, and they also had some secondary outcomes that looked at NT-proBNP levels, changes in physical activity, as well as the prevalence of or the incidence of uh, atrial fibrillation. So the trial was a positive one in that uh, there was a significant improvement in quality of life. Patients at one month uh, that had undergone the personalized accelerated pacing intervention had an improvement in their Minnesota Living with Heart Failure questionnaire score of more than 10. And at uh, one year, that score had dropped to be at least 15 points better from baseline. Uh, in regards to change in natriuretic peptide levels, uh, they had a change of or a reduction of about 15 at one month following uh, the change in pacing, whereas the group that underwent usual care actually had a worsening in their natriuretic peptide levels at one month. In regards to patient activity, patients that were in the personalized accelerated pacing arm became more physically active uh, over time, uh, both at six months and one year. Compared with baseline, uh, the amount of physical activity at six months had uh, increased by 36 minutes uh, per day, and they were then uh, at one year were being more physically active for up to 47 minutes per day. And finally, amongst the patients that underwent or were randomized to the treatment arm, there was a 27% relative risk reduction in the occurrence of atrial fibrillation. Therefore, according to the authors, tailoring the pacemaker backup rate to approximate an individual's resting heart rate uh, improves outcomes. Heart rate modulation delivered in a way that maintains or optimizes physiologic conduction may be a therapeutic target in patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. Well, this month we've looked at three great papers discussing different aspects of the management of patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. There was a wonderful review published in the Journal of the American Medical Association that I really encourage every clinician to take a look at, as well as two papers publishing randomized trial data showing new potential means of improving outcomes 
for patients with heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. And that includes catheter ablation of patients with comorbid atrial fibrillation, as well as personalized accelerated pacing for patients that have a pre-existing pacemaker. Thank you again for taking time to listen to this segment of the podcast. And now it's time for our featured conversation with Dr. Paul Heidenreich. Hello, it's my tremendous pleasure today to be joined by Dr. Paul Heidenreich, who is Professor and Vice Chair for Quality in the Department of Medicine. He's also Chief of Medicine at the VA Palo Alto Healthcare System. And Dr. Heidenreich is incredibly well published and was a co-author for landmark guidelines that came out last year for heart failure updates, as well as a very timely statement by the Heart Failure Society of America that looked at economic issues in heart failure in the United States. And it is uh, my great pleasure to welcome you to the Heart Failure Beat podcast. Thank you so much for your time and for joining us today. Well, thank you. I look forward to our discussion. Wonderful. You know, I think this is such a timely statement, especially given that the heart failure guidelines really outlined the necessity and the need for heart failure guideline-directed medical therapy, and the fact that a large amount of those therapies, some of them have prohibitions for their, their universality of their use. Some of it is due to cost for some of the newer medications. But I think your statement really highlights many, many areas in our healthcare arena where Patients have barriers to the utilization of care, and the cost of care in general is really skyrocketing and maybe is becoming so prohibitively high that we are siloing sections of our heart failure community who are unable to derive benefit and use. And just to start off, as sort of a broad overview, what would you say, you know, you have a great graphic in the first couple of pages of the statement uh, of this pie chart where allocation of resources are being devoted. And, uh, you know, uh, what struck me is in that pie chart, even though we talk about niche medications that cost, you know, $250,000 a year, really the biggest parts of that pie are inpatient hospitalization costs and outpatient care. They make up about 77% of that pie chart. And I was wondering if you could speak to, to that piece and what do you think sort of the main takeaways, the main drains, for lack of a better term, would be and what may be some potential solutions to that? Yeah, so indeed, uh, probably at least half, close to half of the costs are due to inpatient care. So anything we can do to prevent heart failure or be able to manage it as an outpatient um, is potentially cost savings. But I'll say that a lot of the care we provide in many ways delays these hospitalizations. Um, It's great for the patient. They're living longer. They're living healthier. But we will likely have a certain amount of inpatient care for patients uh, with heart failure no matter what. Um, So I think We can't be thinking that we need to eliminate a substantial amount of heart failure care. I think what we need to be thinking is how can we, with this amount that we're spending, get better and longer lives for our patients? Oh, I completely agree with you. And in this um, statement, did you have a sense of where most of the resources were being allocated when it came to inpatient hospitalizations? Was it the advent of critical care needs or more temporary mechanical circulatory support use, perhaps? Is that what's driving up the cost of care, really kind of 
towards, you know, sort of advanced heart failure that we're seeing, as you mentioned, as a nod to that, that people are living longer with these therapies, but maybe they're coming in as a more sick cohort than, than previously seen. Yes, I'd say they are sicker, and that is definitely part of it, having more uh, advanced life support, mechanical circulatory support. Uh, but I think that we didn't actually get into that exact breakdown in that manuscript. That is a growing issue, but I think the fact is that the patients are sicker. They're taking up more intensity of care, uh, a cost to deliver a, a day of heart failure care in the hospital is just much more and more complicated, uh, more intensive than it was, say, 15, 20 years ago. So I think it's a combination of that we do have better treatments that are also expensive, but that the patients themselves are sicker. And I think there's, you know, there's growing interest, I think, in technologies, right? The technologies that kind of keep you out of the hospital. So we talked about how do you mitigate sort of hospitalizations, because hospitalizations, we may not be able to, uh, to avoid them entirely, but is there a way to really decrease the, the number? And some things that have come up and that you addressed in the statement as well was the use of sort of outpatient ambulatory or diuresis clinics, heart failure, bridge clinics, other things are the wearable technologies and devices, things like cardiomems and, you know, things, remote monitoring devices such as that, that might get you that sort of bridge between just the outpatient clinic and a very expensive hospitalization and, you know, sort of that space that can grow in between. Um, and I was wondering if you had any comments on that. Yes, I think there's definitely things we can be doing. And I would include in there just getting a, people on appropriate medical management will likely delay those hospitalizations. Um, in addition, there's monitoring, and you mentioned cardiomems. I think we're still learning exactly and conducting trials and how best to do this patient monitoring and what's the most cost-effective way to do it. But I think that combined with the medications that we already know both prolong lives but also keep people out of the hospital, I think there's definitely still so much more we could be doing that would delay these heart failure costs. And I think that's, it's very much the message, I think, of the guidelines was also, you know, what is heart failure guideline-directed medical therapy and what is the evidence and the evidence continues to grow for certain medical therapies that have been around for longer than some of the newer agents, but certainly have very good qualities of evidence. And I, um, and I think figure two in your, in your statement was, uh, was a very well done figure that talked about the cost effectiveness of different heart failure therapies. And you really highlighted the uses of MRAs, ACE inhibitors, ARB. Um, and I was wondering if you wanted to speak a little bit about that. Yeah. So what, as you mentioned, one of the things we highlighted there was our estimate for the cost effectiveness, as well as how sort of certain we are of these. And, and for those drugs you mentioned, uh, the MRAs, ACE inhibitor, ARB beta blockers, it's, it's I think, very clear that they're a great value for society. Um, one thing I'll mention, though, is they, that doesn't mean necessarily mean they're cost savings. They m might be in certain situations, but just even though something increases the cost of care, if it provides a very good health benefit, it's of high value to us. And so we, I don't want to equate cost effectiveness with cost savings. 
good quality heart failure care is going to cost us money as a society. And we just want to make sure we're getting a good value for that. And those particular medications are a are very good value. Now, that doesn't mean that the other medications are not a good value. Both, I think, the ARNI and maybe to a less, slightly lesser extent, the SGLT2 inhibitors, while they are more expensive, still provide good quality of life and good survival such that we would still consider them to be reasonable values for society. It's just that those MRAs, ACE, and and beta blocker are so inexpensive um, that they're, we'd consider them an excellent value. Excellent. And some of the other, I thought it was interesting on the graph. So you have uh, one side of the graph that is really skewed towards, you know, really blockbuster known trial and tried therapies. And then there's on the right-hand side is tefamidus. <laughs> so you do have these niche drugs, which uh, have a, a very large price point. It's a very niche population who derives benefit from them. And I was wondering how the, the committee sees that going in, in the long term. Is there, are there movements in the, in the community and in the societies to try to get these drugs to be more, more mainstream? Do we say, hey, we increase access to these drugs by using these financial plans and incentives? Or, or how, what do we do with them? Where, what place do they have? Yeah, so I think... We as a society, um, the Heart Failure Society, I think, would clearly state these drugs need to be affordable to patients, um, and they also need to be affordable to society. I think uh, what we would hear from the industry is, oh, we, we work with payers. We, we come up with ways to get this drug to them. We just don't want to tell you what that is, which then, you know, all we can really do if we're analyzing things is go off the list price. Um, which is in very expensive, as you said. And then I think, you know, people say, well, not many people are actually paying that list price. I think that also shows another big problem we have in our health system in general is the lack of tr price transparency. And, in, you know, it's often very difficult for patients, for providers to know what a patient is going to be paying, what will actually be the discounts. It's very challenging to figure that out. And so it's, in some ways, it's difficult to say in the current state how much tefamidus, say, is exactly costing a healthcare system because everything is kept confidential. But clearly at the list price, we feel if it truly is the list price, that that is not a good value. And we need to reduce that both for patients and for, our, and for the health of the population. All excellent points. And to that point, Dr. Heidenreich, do you think there is a movement, or there should be a movement if there isn't one, where there is more price transparency and as sort of heart failure communities and as, as a society, is, is there something that we can do partnering with, with industry and partnering with, with the government where well, we, can, we can move that needle in any way? Yeah. And I think it probably will have to come from the government because I'm not sure it's in industries financial interest to reveal their what they're charging if they don't have to. So I think it is, you know, I think ultimately it'll probably be a government mandate that says, listen, we patients need to know what the price of their drugs are. Any buyer should be able to, to figure those things out. We as providers, if we're going to educate patients, we need to know what we're recommending to them and what's going to be the impact on them. So all of that, I think, 
you know, will take likely, I mean, it would be great if we could come to agreement without it, but I, ultimately I think it will be some type of government uh, mandate to make that happen. So I'm going to ask you a question as your, um, as to wear your hat as vice chair for quality in the Department of Medicine in the, in the VA. And in your own system, um, having contributed significantly to this, this statement and in your own system, where do you, where do you see in large health systems where things can be optimized the most? Do you see it in, in really prevention, sort of these sort of bridge ideas and getting people on GDMT, keeping them at home, and then maybe having the step behind a hospitalization not quite there yet? And then when we get to a hospitalization, what would you say would improve the quality or cost-effective nature of care, by not, but not compromise care at the same time? Yeah, great, uh, great questions. I think prevention should be our main focus. We now have the technology, I think, to be able to identify, say, within a system, who is being appropriately treated and not, and addressing those either directly with the provider who's taking care of that patient or or including a population health effort where you could have a, a group that's dedicated to improving the heart failure care for our population of our system, whatever that is, and they actually proactively reach out and find out what are the barriers to care and work with that patient, their physician, to find out exactly how we can optimize care. So I think there's a lot more we could do on the preventive side. Uh, we definitely also want for those who are sicker to have some, our, our, you know, figure out what the best monitoring system is. So as someone is starting to decompensate, we can recognize that quickly and intervene. There is a clear an opportunity there. Once they're hospitalized you know, the transition, I think many hospitals have figured out the transition reasonably well back to their own system. However, depending on, you know, especially if you're at an academic tertiary center, your, your patients are probably leaving to go to multiple systems, and we still have issues there in terms of coordination of care, making sure we're not duplicating care, providing information uh, in a timely manner. That type of coordination and follow-up across different systems uh, still needs a lot of work. So really, you know, out for all the uh, young heart failure uh, specialists and heart failure teams out there, an opportunity for big data and in process improvement and systems improvement and something for our field to, I think, really take on so we can try to make this as cost-effective but effective care nonetheless. Uh, Dr. Heinrich, thank you for those uh, wonderful responses uh, to those questions. Um, I just have a couple follow-up questions very quickly. You know, you talked a lot about stage C heart failure and value-based care in regards to those types of patients. In the document that was written in 2022 uh, in Figure 2 and, and in the document itself, you know, you did also talk about advanced therapies in regards to heart transplantation and left ventricular assist device implantation. And uh, at least according to what was published, it seems that heart transplants seem to be a higher value care modality when compared to LVAD. I guess, could you talk a little bit about that, how you came to that conclusion and how you made the differentiation between those two options? Yeah, so we looked at published data, looking at the cost of these and cost effectiveness studies, looking at how much it costs to do a heart transplant and the life prolonged due to transplant and similar for the assist devices. 
And yes, heart transplant is a little bit cheaper, a little better value, we'll say, for every year of life gained. Um, however, they're moving targets. The left ventricular assist device technology is continually improving, and that number is dropping significantly. Um, if we were to look 10 years ago, it would have been even higher. So it's going in the right direction, It's and we obviously don't have enough hearts available to all that need them. So it's not, in many ways, it's not a choice between the two. But I would say that while the LVAD is expensive in terms of being, we said about 200,000 for life year gain, which might be slightly above what some societies feel is, is a good value, it has been dropping. And I'm hoping within the next five or 10 years that it'll be even more clearly a cost-effective option. Wonderful. And then my last question is just in a big picture point of view is that on the, you know, the 2022 heart failure guidelines that were published in which you were the first author uh, of the writing group, this was, you know, had received a lot of praise for incorporating value statements in conjunction with the clinical recommendations for patient care. I guess, how did you and the rest of the committee come to the decision that this was the right time and this was an important thing to be included in the guidelines? And do you hope that other guidelines uh, as we move forward would include value as well? Yeah, so I'll, I'll have to give credit to the American College of Cardiology, American Heart Association, who uh, several years ago decided that depending on the guideline and the published data that such value statements are appropriate and then left it up to the, each writing committee to decide which, if any, they would include. We're fortunate with heart failure that there's been a lot of high quality studies on cost effectiveness for different therapies. And, and that's what the committee relied on. We didn't do our own analyses. We used well, the published data. We had experts in health economics who could review this and then determine if it was a high quality study. So because we had so many high quality studies, we were able to actually make value statements for a fair number of our of the therapies not all of them but most of them we were able to come up with some assessment of value well thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today uh this really was a pleasure to get a chance to speak with you we do think this is such an important topic and value and cost and access to, to these therapies is such an important part of the things that we need to consider when we're doing everyday care of our patients with heart failure. And, and thanks for taking the time to, to help us understand these issues so much better. I'm really, really grateful for your time today. Thank you so much for your time and being willing to answer all my probing questions. I really appreciate it. And uh, any last words for our uh, listeners? The one thing I'll, I'll mention we didn't have a chance to discuss is I, I think there's the patient cost versus the, uh, what a system costs. And I, and I know I, there's a growing movement, I'm definitely in favor of this, that, that our patients should not have to be paying co-pays for treatment that we and our guidelines or societies feel it provides a very strong benefit no matter what, you know, and making sure we remove any barrier, any cost barrier to the patient in terms of the copay. That it's sort of a new way of thinking. 
and many of the payers don't think, uh, have still not approached it that way, but we should really be linking the co-pays to the guideline recommendations. If there are strong guideline recommendations, we shouldn't have a copay. I'll, I'll throw that in there at the end. Thank you for giving me the chance to make uh, to advocate for that. No, thank you so much. That is a that is a revolutionary idea, but what an awesome idea! So that's great, fantastic. Thank you very much, Dr. Heidenreich. Welcome to Failure to Function on the Heart Failure Beat for March 2023. I will be giving you a hyperspeed review of the late-breaking clinical trials presented at the recent American College of Cardiology scientific sessions in New Orleans. Valve disease featured prominently for our heart failure community, with five-year outcomes from the COAP trial being presented. These were cardiovascular outcomes assessments of the mitroclip therapy for heart failure patients who have functional MR. The COAP trial, as we are familiar with, looked at cardiovascular outcomes assessments of mitroclip therapies for heart failure patients with functional MR. This is the five-year follow-up results. The study originally enrolled heart failure patients with grade 3 to 4 mitral regurgitation who remained symptomatic despite maximum guideline-directed medical therapy and was randomized one-to-one with mitroclip plus GDMT or GDMT alone. The total number of patients enrolled in this trial was originally 614. The five-year outcome showed that 87% of patients completed five-year follow-up And for the primary endpoint of heart failure hospitalization, the mitroclip plus GDMT group was 61% versus 83% in GDMT alone with a hazard ratio of 0.49. This difference noticeably was mostly seen in the first 36 months of trial follow-up. Death or heart failure hospitalization was 73.6% versus 91%, and all-cause mortality was 57.3% versus 67.2% with a hazard ratio of 0.72. The results of this trial were published in the New England Journal of Medicine on March 5th, 2023. Moving to the other side of the heart, the trialuminate pivotal trial was presented, which was a randomized clinical trial studying transcatheter repair for tricuspid regurgitation using the triclip device. Enrollment for this trial included severe symptomatic TR, who were on stable GTMT and device therapy for heart failure for more than 30 days. These patients had an intermediate risk of mortality and morbidity with tricuspid valve surgery. Exclusion criteria importantly included if they had indications for any other valve intervention, severe pulmonary hypertension, a left ventricular ejection fraction less than or equal to 20%, or anatomy not suitable for the triclip device. This was a one-to-one randomization study, triclip versus medical therapy. The endpoint was a composite of mortality or tricuspid valve surgery, heart failure, hospitalization, quality of life improvement with a KCCQ score that was greater than or equal to 15 points from the baseline. The trial enrolled 350 patients that they studied at the end of 12 months. And the characteristics of these patients, some of the interesting ones were that 70% or so of these patients had massive or torrential TR, and they had a mean LVEF in the device therapy arm of approximately 59%. The trial achieved significant reduction in TR to moderate or less in the intervention group, 87% versus 4.8% in the control at the end of 12 months. They reported a win ratio of 1.48 of triclip versus medical therapy, And this was driven predominantly by improvement in KCCQ scores. 
there were no statistically significant changes in death or tricuspid valve surgery or decreased heart failure hospitalization in the triclip arm. Moving on to the pulmonary arteries, the STELLAR trial examined the safety and efficacy of Cetartacept, a novel activin signaling inhibitor on pulmonary arterial hypertension. This is a phase three randomized controlled trial in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension on existing pulmonary arterial hypertension therapy who were WHO class two to three. The total number of patients who were randomized were 323 with a primary endpoint of changes in six-minute walk distance as assessed at 24 weeks. The primary endpoint was favorable for the use of Cetatacept with an increase in six-minute walk distance of 40.1 meters in the Cetatacept arm versus a decline of 1.4 meters in the placebo group, where full details can be found for the study at the New England Journal of Medicine. Preliminary results from another trial known as the BMAD study, which looked at the impact of heart failure management using thoracic fluid monitoring using a novel wearable sensor was presented. These were the preliminary results of the use of the microcore device in managing ambulatory decompensated heart failure. This is a prospective multi-center, multinational study using a wearable device that assesses lung water content using a measurement of thoracic fluid index. The study used an intervention arm that wore the device and had interventions based on thoracic fluid index reporting, as well as an arm that underwent usual management. Patients used this device for 90 days, and approximately 500 patients were enrolled in this study. Preliminary data showed that managing heart failure in an ambulatory setting using threshold alerts as obtained from the microcode device of this trial reported that managing heart failure with a threshold alert from the heart failure management system resulted in a 38% relative risk reduction of heart failure hospitalization and a 7% absolute risk reduction in the intervention arm. These are exciting results with the limitations of a prospective study, and we look forward to further analysis and finalized outcomes from this trial. The last trial I'll share with you is the CLEAR trial, safety and efficacy of cholesterol lowering via a novel agent known as bempedoic acid in patients who are at high risk for cardiovascular disease or are intolerant of statins. All patients enrolled in the trial were deemed statin intolerant previously, but other lipid-lowering therapies were allowed. Patients were randomized one-to-one to receive bempedoic acid or placebo, The trial enrolled 13,970 patients who were followed for a mean duration of time of 40.6 months. Primary endpoint was major adverse cardiovascular events for bempedoic acid versus placebo and were found to be 11.7% in the bempedoic acid arm versus 13.3% in the placebo arm with a hazard ratio of 0.87. This trial was published in the New England Journal of Medicine in early March. I hope you enjoyed highlights from the Fantastic Five. But to read more about the trials that I spoke about, you can find their links on our webpage. It was great sharing some highlights from some of the clinical trials presented at ACC. And I look forward to sharing more science with you again. Till next time. On behalf of Michael and myself, we want to thank you for tuning into the Heart Failure Beat. 
We'll catch you next time with more exciting news and discussions from the world of heart failure.